All right. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Rob. We're going to continue our reading, our weekly scripture reading, through the book of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an, av an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, though Jesus, through Jesus, God will bring him with those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love your word. 
Thank you that your words are an encouragement to us. Thank you, Father, for the call that you have given us to walk in the light as you are in the light, to walk in holiness and purity. Thank you, Lord, that you have made your will known to us. It is your will that we be sanctified, that we be set apart. Lord, that we give you glory and reflect your goodness in this world. And we ask your blessing, Lord, to be able to do that. Thank you that we have all that we need through the knowledge of Jesus Christ for life and for godliness. Thank you for the hope that we have that you are coming back, Lord, for your church. You are coming back for your redeemed, and we will be with you forever. And so, Lord, may we encourage our hearts even now with that reality. May we forever remember, Lord, that this is not our home and this is not the end for us. The best is always yet to come, and in the end we get to be with you. And, Lord, that is heaven. You are our treasure. You are our delight. That's why we've gathered here today, to delight ourselves in you. And so we praise you, Father. We praise you. We thank you for your kindness and your goodness and your love for us. Be glorified in our lives and in this gathering. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to James chapter 4. In James, we are completing chapter 4 today. We're looking at five verses. And as of late, as we've worked our way through chapter 4, we've seen that humility is rather central to the chapter, the issue of humility. In fact, James says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to what? The humble. Okay, very good. You've been paying attention. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. We have considered humility towards one another as the chapter starts out by addressing the, the source of conflict in the body of Christ, strife and wars and contentions and quarreling. He says, where does that come from? It's because of unmet desires and lust, so on and so forth, which causes problems within the body of Christ. Then he says that we ought to humble ourselves before God. Humble ourselves before God. Draw near to Him, and He will draw near to us. Resist Satan, and the enemy will flee. Well, today, we're going to be discussing humility and how we plan for our futures. Humility and how we plan for our future. You know, I remember a time in my life when I gave no thought to the future whatsoever. When I was much younger, in my teenage years especially, Really, all I cared, cared about was partying, and I was just lived a very wild life, and I really didn't know uh, if I would even live to be you know, a middle-aged man or what life could even look like for me at that point, so I just didn't think about that, you know? But when I came to Christ, at the ripe old age of 21 years old, for the first time in my life, I had hope. I had hope. I had excitement for the future. I had vision, I had goals, dreams, godly desires. And you know what? That's a wonderful thing. That's a great thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But you know what? That quickly turns into agonizing and obsessing over the future. We get to where it's all we do is think about the things that we need to do, the things that we have to have. And they can be good and they can be important things. But it, we're not to be constantly twisted up in a pretzel and stressing out over these kinds of things. 
Um, and the reality is when we do that, we're kind of carrying ourselves as though we're the ones that are in control of it all. As though we're in control of our destiny and our future. And we're going to make it happen. Godly ambition, which is not a bad thing, can become arrogance and self-determinism, which is a bad thing. That is sin, right? And my friends, this is a widespread problem amongst Christians. I would call it a plandemic. You get that? No, no, it went right over your head. Plandemic, you know, pandemic, planning. It's a problem, okay? We are so caught up in the future. And so often we just have it all mapped out where we want to go and what we want to do and what we want to attain and how we're going to do it and so on and so forth. And we can just wish our life away and never be content or grateful for what we have right in front of us. Never really giving any consideration to what God has to say in the matter or what God's will or God's plan is, so on and so forth. And I would say that's really kind of the issue that we have in front of us in this text today. And that's what James is going to speak to. And so I titled this message, If the Lord Wills. That comes right out of the text. If the Lord Wills. This is a warning against arrogance and presumption. It's a warning against arrogance and presumption. So let's look at James chapter 4, verse 13. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. It's so practical, Lord. It's so relevant. I have been so challenged by it, and I trust that it will speak to all of us in here today. Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord. Help us to see, God, what it is that you're trying to address in our lives by your holy word. Help us, Lord, by your spirit and your grace to make the changes that need to be made. Father, may we not live as though you are not in control and present, as though you don't have a will for our lives, as though you are not the one who is working, Lord, to bring it all to pass. Help us, Lord, not to presume Help us, Lord God, to trust you in all our ways. Would you be glorified this morning as we consider this passage of Scripture together? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we've got five verses in front of us, and we are going to look at it one verse at a time. And so we have five points. Five points I want us to consider. The first thing that we see in this very first verse here, verse 13 is what I would say, it's a, it's a failure to remember God in our planning. A failure to remember God in our planning. Look at verse 13. 
It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, James is dealing with the issue of presumption. Now, what is presumption? Well, um, here would be like a good example of it. A, A guy and a girl, they go out on a date, and it's time for the date to be over, and the guy kisses the girl, but she was not She wasn't okay with that. She wasn't ready for that. He presumed that she would be, and she slaps him in the face. Okay, so that's presumption, all right? And uh, I I came up with that because I actually looked that up, the word this morning in the dictionary, and that was essentially the sentence that it gave. It said, the guy lifted the girl off the ground, and she was outraged, outraged by his presumption. So I was like, well, what does that mean, lifted her up off the ground? And I was thinking, what do you do, like, you know, whisk her into the air and spin her around or something? And she's like, oh, fella, we ain't there yet, okay? (laughs) And so, you know, you get the idea. It's presumption. You know, we are presuming as though we know. And, And all too often we can get it wrong. You know, pragmatism, I would say, uh, we live in an age of pragmatism. If it works, then it's good. Do it. Uh, the, the ends justify the means. We're just really on this surface material plane, and so if it sounds good and it makes sense and it's logical, go for it, but not really giving any consideration to uh, what God may say or think about the issue. Personal prognostication. Yeah, I'm going strong with the P's here. Uh, prognostication, in case you don't know, that's like um, foreseeing the future, essentially, like predicting. You're making predictions about how the future is going to go and how your plans are going to work out, but you just don't know. None of us do. And that's exactly what James talks about here. So, you know, James is probably literally addressing merchants and successful business people. This is, you know, I would say he's talking to a literal group of people here who do this very thing. But it goes far beyond the realm of business dealings. He's not just talking to merchants and business people who are coming up with a business plan. You know, all of us have had or even now have a very detailed plan of how we want things to go in our lives. And we are working very aggressively to that very end. And you know what? That's not a bad thing in and of itself. We are not called to wander aimlessly through life. And I would say far too often, that's an issue. People really aren't giving the kind of consideration towards their future. And, uh, you know, Proverbs is filled with wisdom on diligence and planning and working toward the future. You know, the reality is, is that if you aim at nothing, you're going to hit it every time. Right? Right? And so we, are, we do want to be a people who are concerned with the future and, and we're working towards something good and, and we're using our life and our resources and our energies and efforts towards that which is meaningful and fruitful and impactful. But what is conspicuously absent from the verse that we just read is God. God is missing in that verse. Come now, you who say that today, tomorrow, we're going to move to such and such place for a year and do business, buy and sell. But there's no mention whatsoever of God in that. 
And so that's the issue at hand. That is the issue. The uh, reality is God does have a will. He is in control. And we err when we live, plan, and worry as though he doesn't have a plan and isn't in control. And honestly, I think we do. We live in that place all the time, probably. And, you know, every single week I get up here and talk about how convicted I am by these passages and sermons. And, I mean, I've just been hit right between the eyes again. I mean, I'm just getting just, you know, whooped mercilessly, ruthlessly, week after week by this book, man, by these passages. And the reality is it's just so relevant, especially in the day and age in which we live. And so I've really been having to just continually bring myself back underneath, uh, back into submission to God's truth. And Father, forgive me. And, you know, just bring it back to the simplicity of what God has to say about these matters. You see, God has a revealed will. God has a revealed will. That is the Word of God. And it's, it's, easy, it's easy to ascertain His will from this book right here. He's made it very clear to us. And it deals with general principles and specifics. There's a lot that we learn about God and His character and nature. There's a lot that the Word has to say about how we ought to live our lives. I mean, I just look at the chapters that we read today in 1 Thessalonians, jam-packed with practical truth about how we can live our lives day to day. And so there's so much that we can know about how to live our lives just based upon what God has revealed to us. But then I would say there is this hidden um, providential will, if you will, that we're trying to discern and walk in. It's, it's what exactly are we supposed to do with our lives. Oftentimes it looks like, God, who would you have me to marry? Um, will there be children in my life or not? School, would you have me continue my education, uh, work, ministry, uh, buying a home, where, you know, there's just so many of these big decisions that we make in our lives, and there are so many other decisions in between that we can't necessarily know the answer to. And so, but we're always trying to figure those things out and arrive at those things, and that's where it gets a little more challenging. And that is where we can begin to try to become the, really the master of our own destiny and figure out our own way and scheme and work towards trying to make it happen. And so often we can be so frustrated because for whatever reason it just isn't happening the way that we planned. Life did not pan out the way that we expected. We can become disillusioned, discouraged, dejected. Uh, on and on it goes. You know, I love Abraham. I feel like Abraham was just such a great example of a man of faith who walked by faith and followed God. This guy was a pagan idol worshiper, and God revealed himself to Abram. And then he gave him this command. He said, you're going to go into a land that I'm going to show you. But that's, about, that's what he tells him. So basically, go. And we call Abraham this great man of faith, and that's one of the reasons, because he did, but he didn't even know where he was going. But nonetheless, God revealed himself to him. Abraham believed God, 
by faith. It was accounted to him as righteous. He was the father of faith, and he walked with God. And it was said of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. But by faith he went to live in a land, in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So he lived in this land. He was a sojourner. He was a pilgrim. He walked by faith. He walked in simple obedience to the Father. And he was always pressing forward towards this promise that had been given to him. He was looking for a city whose builder was God. And he was a man of faith who was a pilgrim in this land. And so that's essentially the way it is for us. God calls us, God justifies us, brings us into right relationship with himself, and then he says, go, go forth. And this place is not our home. We're pilgrims. We're just passing through. We're sojourners. We're looking for a city whose builder is God. We're looking for that heavenly city where our citizenship actually lies. But while we are here, we are attempting to obey God and serve God with the resources that He has given us. We want to be faithful with what He has entrusted to us as good stewards. And along the way, we're trying to discern, Father, where would you have me to go? Who would you have me to spend my life with? What would you have me give my energies and my efforts and my resources to for your glory? And so while we are here... We are living in such a way that we recognize that God has a plan. God has a will. God has a desire, and He is ultimately in control. And as children of God, we are trying to live in that place, that realm. Amen? We're pilgrims. You know, I went camping a week ago. And you get there, you set up your tent, and you kind of set up all your little camping equipment and try to make things as comfortable as you can. Uh, given the circumstances, it's not ever going to be all that comfortable. But I didn't start like hanging pictures on the trees and, you know, setting up a kitchen table out there and just totally decking it out like it's my house and I'm going to live there for the next two years. No, it's temporary. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm there and I'm looking for some, some level of creature comfort, but at the same time, I know that I'm just passing through and this is a very temporary thing. And so that's the way that we have to look at life. And so we have to give God the recognition that he deserves. We have to remember God. And I use that word, R, the R, remember, there's a bunch of R's here. Remember because we forget. We forget. We forget God. We forget to include God, and so that's why it's important that we constantly remember God. And it's, well, I'm not going to get ahead of myself, so let's just keep moving. So, point number two that we will see in verse 14 is a failure to recognize the brevity of life. A failure to recognize the brevity of life. When we go about making our own plans, devoid of any consideration towards God and His will, that is a failure to recognize the brevity of our own life, James tells us, because you do not know the future 
but God does. You do not know the future, but God does. Look at the first part of verse 14. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. See, we have no clue what could happen in a moment to alter the course of our lives forever. How many times have we experienced that? Something that you could have never expected or foreseen in a moment in time changes everything, flips everything upside down or right side up. God can do either or, and He does often. But we can spend so much time worrying and agonizing about stuff that we just don't know what is going to happen in a moment, in a day, in a week, in a year. And so it's pointless. Only God knows the future because He controls the future. And we do neither of those. We don't know the future, nor do we control it. Amen? In Isaiah 46, verse 8, it says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Praise God. God knows all things. He uh, said that His purposes will come to pass. His counsel will stand. And so I don't want to be found fighting against God. God's in control and I'm not. God sees all things and I don't. And so far be it for me to try to live as though I do, as though I were in control. The reality is, is that God is sovereign. God is supreme. In fact, that's one of our core values here at Calvary Bible Church. We celebrate that reality. We find great comfort in that reality and hope. In fact, I'll just read right off our website. This is, this is what we say about this very thing. We hold the sovereignty of God in high regard. We take refuge in the fact that God exercises complete and unhindered control over all that occurs in His universe, according to the purpose and counsel of His own will, and to the praise of His glorious grace. We affirm that He must be worshipped as the one true supreme being. He alone declares the end from the beginning and accomplishes all His purposes. That He is in control is what brings us rest." Amen? And so, God, your will be done. Your will be done. Not my plan, not bless my plans, but Lord, your plan for my life, your will for my life. What we're talking about here is God's providence. God's providence. That's another doctrine that we just love, I love, I talk about it regularly. Uh, The Gospel Coalition, an article uh, on the doctrine of providence, defines it like this. The providence of God is the working of God's sovereignty to continually uphold, guide, and care for His creation. Some theologians have described this as a continual creation, as opposed to the notions that God created the world and then stepped back from it. The providence of God leaves no room for chance or competition between God and another power. 
We cannot know all of the particularities of God's providential plan. Only God knows how all things work together. So God is sovereign. God is very concerned. He's very interested. God has a will, and God's providence is Him bringing those things to pass, working all things together for good for those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. God didn't just create the world, wind it up, and step back and let it go. God created all things and is still very intimately involved in bringing all things to pass in accordance with His will. Amen? And not just on the big cosmic level, but down into the smallest little details of all of our lives. And that, to me, is what's so amazing about God's providence. How He does that. Only God, only the mind of God could do such a thing. Only the power of God could do such a thing. And that is what is ultimately at work in our lives. And then we come along somehow thinking that we're going to add to that or we're somehow going to bring things to pass or concoct a better plan than God has. And it's foolishness. So one, we don't know the future. And so it's foolishness for us to try to pretend as though we do. And the second thing James points out regarding the brevity of our own life is that our life is just a moment in time. But God is eternal. God is infinite. We're just a blip on the radar. James says we're just a mist. We're like a vapor. Verse uh, 14, the remainder of verse 14, James asks the question, he says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, and then vanishes. Now, James speaks to the issue basically with an insult, it would seem, right? Like, you know, you're, you're nothing. You're just a vapor. You're a mist. Now, this may come across as demeaning or even uncaring, as though we have no value or worth or purpose, and that is not at all what James is trying to say. There are times when what we need to be told is that we are created in the image of God and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Amen? There are times when people need to be reminded of that truth and that you have great value and worth in the eyes of your Creator. But you know what? When we begin to try to take God's place and we try to lead as though we ourselves are God, we need to be reminded that we are not. We need to be reminded, actually, of our frailty. And that's exactly what James is doing here. And so this is not a guilt trip, and it's not just an insult, but it's a proper perspective for when we get out of line, when we start thinking that we're the master of our own destiny, and that we've got this, and that we have all that we need, all the knowledge, all the resources, all the wisdom to bring about our desired end. James says, well, first off, you have no clue what the future holds, and two, you're just a mist anyways, you're just a vapor. Now, this ought to really be a vivid picture for us who live in the Bay Area because so often we get up and it's totally overcast outside. There's the gloom, there's the fog, and then come lunchtime, it is gone, burned away. And it is forgotten. The mist is, you know, it's the thing about mist, it's, it's, it's just weightless. It's tiny little particles of moisture suspended in air. I mean, what is it? And then it burns off and it's gone and it's forgotten. 
And James essentially says that's what we are. That's what we are like. And so he's just trying to help us see it from God's vantage point. That's why we need to leave these things in God's hands, because God is far more capable of taking and leading and providing and guiding in our lives than we are for ourselves. And so it's foolishness somehow to think that we are more qualified than God. You know, from God's vantage point, this, that's exactly what this is like. I'll read Psalm 90 to us. It's a few verses from Psalm 90. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, I love that everlasting to everlasting. That is, from eternity past, there is no end. This is beyond our ability to, to grasp. But as far back as you could go without end, and as far future as you can go without end, He is God. He was there. But we, we weren't, okay? And then it says... Verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So, for God, a thousand years is like five minutes ago. You know, we, we quickly forget things. Our memories fade. We can hardly remember what happened yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before. I, I you know, if I were to say... Uh, what did the pastor talk about last Sunday? You would probably be almost impossible to remember. Uh, but not so with God. A thousand years passes, and it's like five minutes ago. And so um, it says it's like a, a night watch, a few hours in the night, a three-hour time span in the night. Verse 10, it says, The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they're soon gone. And we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You understand what he's saying there? Help, Lord, help me to remember my frailty. Help me to remember that, you know, it's like that my life is gone. So that I will have a heart of wisdom and live in the light of that reality. Not waste my time. Not, not focus on things that really didn't matter. Uh, we can just spend our lives straining towards things that really don't matter when what really matters is right in front of us. And so often you hear people say on their deathbeds, they wish they would have done this, that, or the other. And so often it's not attain more things. What is it? It's spend more time with people that they loved. It's, it's the simple things, the basic things, the, the good and godly things. Well, if our life is a mist and God is sovereign, why do we agonize over that which is out of our control? You know, some people try so hard to be in control, and they are absolutely devastated when things do not go the way they intended. I mean, absolutely paralyzed. Jesus said, don't do that. Jesus said not to worry about these things, not to worry about our needs. He literally said, worrying and agonizing prophets, nothing, zero. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
Then he goes on to talk about the flowers and the field and the birds of the air and how God takes care of them. And if God takes care of them, of how much more value are we to God? And do you think God would take any less care of us? And then he says in verse 31, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And here, listen to this, and we know this. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things are going to be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Jesus says, look, if you'll just focus on God, if you'll focus on God's will, if you'll focus on what pleases Him, He's going to take care of all these things that we constantly stress out about. We're focused on all these other lesser things. And God says, don't look at that, look at me. Focus on me and I'll take care of you. And I'll take care of those things that you are so worried about and tripped up over. And then Jesus says, you know what? Don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has its own concerns. You know, there's going to be other things to worry about then. All right? So we got to worry about what's in front of us today. Sufficient for today are the troubles thereof. we got enough going on today. I don't have to worry about a year from now. I'm just trying to figure out what I'm going to do about today. Amen? I mean, can somebody relate with that? I think we all can. And so Jesus says, don't even worry about today. Worship God. Consider Him. Acknowledge Him. Follow Him. Trust Him. Serve Him. And God's going to take care of you. So we don't have to worry about that. And that leads us, point three, James gives us the remedy. James gives us the remedy to presumptive living, if you will. Verse 15, instead... You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, that's simple enough. So you mean to tell me, Pastor, the only, really all I've got to do is attach if the Lord wills and I'm good? Well, that's easy. That's convenient. I'll just come up with a plan that sounds really good to me, and then I'll attach the Lord's will to it, and it's good, you know? In Jesus' name, right? If the Lord wills, is that what is going on here? That is not what is going on. He's not simply saying that you can tack the phrase, if the Lord wills, on the end of your plans, and now it's endorsed by God and good to go. He's speaking of a reality here. See, listen, we've talked about the theme of this book is what? To be a, a doer of the Word. It's not enough just to be a hearer of the Word. You've got to be a doer of the Word, Right? Well, I would say that it's not enough to just be a sayer of the Word. We can do that just as easily. Not only do I hear the Word and know the Word, I can say the Word and never do the Word. And that's not good either. And so it's not good to just say if the Lord wills. We've got to do what pleases the Lord in our lives. We have to seek after God's will in our lives. So this has to be a reality that we are very busy to walk in. I'll talk about this again in a moment. I'll bring it up right here. And I talked about this on Wednesday night for anybody that was here on Wednesday. It's really Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. I, just, I love that verse. 
And the more I walk with the Lord and the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I love those verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your steps, or He will make your path straight. Acknowledge God. Trust Him. Don't try to lean on your own understanding. That's exactly what James is getting at here. Don't try to come up with your own best plan for your life. Don't try to come up with what seems like is, you know, the best thing for you to do. That's leaning on your own understanding. Acknowledge God. Recognize God. Remember God. Look to God. Make that a reality in your life. And He will take care of you. He will guide your steps. Amen? I like the translation, He will direct your path, because it's like I'm walking on the path. And God's moving the path. And so I'm just walking, man. I'm just following the path. And as I go, God's moving the path, you know. And so I kind of like that visual in my mind. And I'm just following God. I'm just walking with God. It's a reality where God is the priority in your life. God is a priority. Prioritizing Him. And Jesus modeled this beautifully, did He not? Jesus modeled this for us wonderfully. So often he would say, look, I didn't come to do my will, but what? I came to do the Father's will. I came to do the will of him who sent me. In fact, Jesus said it's my food to do his will. It was Jesus' sustenance. It was, it was what gave him energy and excitement. It was coming to do what pleased the Father. And Jesus did not succumb to presumption. Remember when Satan tempted him? It was like, you know what? Just throw yourself off the temple. God will rescue you. You're the Son of God. And then everybody's going to know that you are who you claim you are. So just do it. And what did Jesus say? He said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You shall not put him to the test. You know, basically, like, don't, don't put God in a situation somehow where you think you can force him to act. That's presumption. That's presumption, and Jesus didn't fall for that. So Jesus prioritized the Father's will. He lived for it. He always sought to walk in it and obey it, even when it cost him everything, even when he understood the immense pain and suffering that would come as a result of it. You remember, he even prayed. In his humanity, he prayed, Father, if there's any other way that we can do this thing without me having to go to the cross and suffer your wrath and be separated from you for the first time in eternity past. If there's any other way, Lord, let this cup pass from me. But there was no other way. And so he drank the cup. He did the Father's will. He obeyed the Father to the very end, even at such immense suffering and cost to himself. He suffered greatly to do the Father's will. So that was a reality in his life, a reality that he walked in, a reality that cost him dearly. Therein is the good news. You know, therein is the good news for us. Jesus did not sway. He did not waver. He did the Father's will. Praise God that he came and he was about the Father's business. This was the Father's plan for his Son. It was the Father's plan that His Son would come down to this earth and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That He would fulfill all righteousness 
and that he would take the wrath that we justly deserved upon himself so that we could have God's love, God's favor, and God's blessings. Praise God that Jesus lived for the will of the Father. Amen? Praise God that Jesus fulfilled the will of the Father. It is for that reason that we have the love of God. We are children of God because of Jesus' obedience to the Father's will. You remember when he was a child and he got separated from the caravan and his parents figured that out after a few days and they they freaked out and they went back and found him in the temple talking with the, the teachers and leaders and they were like, where were you? Why did you do this? And he said, did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? So he was very concerned with his father's will. Well, James goes on to give us a solution. I'm sorry, I just went way back several points, sorry. Um, Jesus modeled this, and I'll, I'll give you a good example of what not to do. Joshua. You familiar with him, the book of Joshua? There was a couple times, that guy was a leader like no other, but there were a couple of times where he made some pretty serious mistakes. They had such an awesome victory at Jericho, remember that? Just crushed it. And God had given some commands. They were not to take the spoils of war. It was all to go, it was supposed to go to God. You remember Achan? Remember him? He took some of the spoils of war. So there was sin in the camp and they didn't know it yet. But then what? They're like, man, AI is nothing, man. That's, we could just take them out. I mean, compared to Jericho, I mean, Joshua, we can just send a contingent of troops in. Just, we'll just, we don't even need the whole army. Just let us go in. What happened? They got wiped out. Why? Because God's blessing was not on them because there was sin there, but they didn't take time to seek the Lord's will, and God could have told them what was going on, and they went ahead without God's blessing. Then they came back and said, what happened, God? And God revealed to them that there was some business that needed to be dealt with in the camp, right? They got out ahead of God. And then Joshua, several chapters later, they're going through the land, they're conquering. These people know that the Israelites are coming and that they're coming for them, so they're like, we, we, they concocted a plan of their own. They were going to go in and pretend to be someone other than who they actually were. They were going to pretend to be a people that came from a long way away. So they had old clothes and busted up shoes and old moldy bread to give the appearance that they had come from a very far land, but they were actually coming from very nearby. And they were like, look, we came from a long way away, and we just had heard about you guys. So just make a deal with us that after you take all the land and dispossess everybody that you'll leave us alone. Well, they, they were being tricked. They were being deceived, Joshua and them. And they said, well, you know, it looks like it all checks out. Their clothes is all, all busted up and their bread is all moldy. They must be from a long way away. So they made this covenant and they sinned. And they got got. They were had. And so they didn't inquire of the Lord. And how easily can we do that? How quickly do we do that? We get out ahead of God. We presume to know And then we act without stopping first to seek God's face and God's will in any given situation. We go on out ahead of Him because pragmatically it all looks good, makes sense, seems like the right thing to do. But we don't stop to acknowledge God. Well, number four, James gives us the the root of all of this. So there's the, the next R, the root 
of this presumption. Verse 16, he says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So this gets to the core of the issue. Why is presumption so evil in God's eyes? Because it's boastfulness that stems from arrogance. That's what it is. And this is the very thing James had been warning against. Pride. Remember that? He's been dealing with the issue of humility. Well, this is the opposite of that. When you somehow think that you got it figured out, you know what's best, you know exactly how to get there, when and for how long you're going to do it, and what the outcome is going to be. That's pride. That's arrogance. James says that's sin. It's evil. It's boastful arrogance. It's I've got this. And Lord, I'll call upon you if something glitches and I need some help. I'll let you know. But I've got this, and when I need a little bit of assistance, I'll give you a call. You know, humility says God is God and I am not. God knows the future and I don't. God is eternal and infinite and I am a passing vapor. God is infinitely good and wise and has a far better plan and will, you know, a plan and will for my life than anything that I could ever come up with. And God has the resources and capability to bring it about far above my own. So that's humility, that is acknowledging God, that is putting God in His rightful place and recognizing that it's all His. It's all for Him, through Him, to Him, by Him, from Him. Amen? It's all about Him. And so this brings us to our fifth and final point. The fifth R, the responsibility of those who know better. The responsibility of we who know better. Verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James is making it clear that we are in sin if we fail to do this. We already ought to know better, but now James has told us clearly. So what are we going to do with it? Because now that we know the truth, if we fail to do it, this is sin. It's sin. There are sins of commission and sins of omission. Commission is when we actively rebel and choose to do things that are sinful towards God. But omission is when we know the right thing to do and we don't do it. We fail to do it. We know that we ought to acknowledge God and look to Him for our life, but we don't. Instead, we seek to lead our own lives apart from Him. Boastful arrogance and pride. So then, let's kind of close with this. How then do we discern the Lord's will? How do we walk and live in this reality? What are some practical steps that we can take to walk in obedience to this passage right here? Well, first off, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that's a great place to start. Memorize that. Meditate on that. Put that before yourself regularly. Make that a life verse. Make that something that you seek to always go back to. When you find yourself maybe straying away, oh, remember the Lord. Don't forget the Lord. Recognize the Lord. Acknowledge the Lord. Make that a reality in your life. Purpose that that is going to be a daily reality in your life. Every morning when you get up, today, Father, is a day that you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. How can I walk with you today? So oftentimes I'll pray, Father, I don't want to just have this time with you in the morning and then go on the rest of my day and forget you because that's easy to do. You get up in the morning, you read your Bible, you pray, you worship, you feel good about that, and then you, get, you go on the rest of your day and give no thought whatsoever to God until tomorrow morning. That's not good. 
So seeking to live a life where all day, every day, we're walking with God. Now praying, number two, praying is an obvious part of seeking to align ourselves with God's will. It's not making a plan and putting it out before God. Now, I will say, in my own life, there are times where I will look at a situation. As a leader, I have to do this. I'll say, okay, it seems to me like we've got some options here of how we could proceed. And I'm just going to, you know, put this before the Lord and trust that God, if, if it's this way, it'll kind of materialize. If this doesn't happen, then... You know, we're gonna, it'll, we'll go in this direction, or there could be something here that I haven't even considered that maybe you have, and so open to that as well, right? So, you know, I, I don't want to be like, you don't just ask God to bless your plan, but sometimes we do. We have to just take the, what we've got, do the best we can with what we got, and put it before the Lord and say, Father, is this what you would have me to do, or is there something all, altogether different? But praying, connecting, asking God. And then looking to God's Word for guidance. Looking to God's Word because there are certainly principles that can apply to a wide range of things. You know, um, if you have come up with a plan to leave your spouse and go do some other thing somewhere else in the world because that would make you happy and God wants you to be happy. Well, I can tell you right now, that ain't God's will, okay? Because God's Word says otherwise. So there are a host of things that really we can just get the answer right here, and it's just that easy. And so really having a good working understanding of what the Word of God says will really help expedite this whole thing. It really will, right? But then even next to that, Seeking counsel from other godly believers around us. What do you think about this? You know, what do you think about me maybe going this direction or, or doing this or doing that? They're oftentimes, we'll be able to see blind spots and help you to see things that perhaps you yourself would not have seen or considered. And Proverbs eleven fourteen says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. There's safety and wisdom and a multitude of counsel. Next, I would say trust in God's sovereignty. Remember, that is a reality. God is in control. It's God's in control, okay? And so, you know, concoct your plan. I mean, you ain't going to like, you're not going to somehow, God was like, yo, I was going to do this, but they messed it up. That's not what's the issue here. It's just the boastful arrogance of somehow thinking that you can. And so, you know what, at the end of the day, rest in the fact that God is sovereign, that He is in control, and that God will help you in your own weakness. If you don't know what to do, don't trip out, don't stress. Be honest with God, and He's going he's gonna to take care of it anyways. Because Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And so we can do the best that we can to come up with what we think we're supposed to do, but rest in the fact that at the end of the day, God's going to direct you. God is going to guide you. God is going to get you to where He wants you to be. Next, I will say, allow God to change your plans. Don't get devastated and flipped. And sometimes God changes our plans through ways in which I wouldn't have. I wish He would just say, hey, Rob, don't do that. But instead, he causes my car to break down or something like that. And now I'm not going to get to it. You know what I mean? Like, 
the last time my car broke down, I thought, I wanted to get very upset, and I was upset. But I thought, you know, maybe I was about to get in like this horrible collision that would have killed me, and God just graciously broke my car down. You don't know, so it's like, thank you, God. I, I'm just going to assume that God just totally saved me from some cataclysmic disaster, and I'll never know. So instead of complaining about it, and like, God, why would you do that? I'm your child, and you did that to me. It's like, no, thank you, Father. You're good, and I know that you've got reasons for everything that you do, so praise you, right? Allow God to change your plans, hold your plans loosely. And then lastly, and really above all of this, do our plans take into account the glory of God? Is that the chief end of what you're trying to do? Is that our aim, living for the glory of God? God, how does this reflect your goodness and kindness? Does this really take you into consideration? By me making this radical change or move, is this what's going to bless and please you? Is this what's going to bless and please your people? Just recognizing that whether we eat or sleep or whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God. Amen? And so acknowledging God and doing what we do for His glory and for His pleasure and for His fame. All right, let's close with that. And I'll pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your good word. We thank you for this truth, Lord. It's so relevant, practical, powerful, challenging. But, Lord, help us not to just be hearers, help us not to just be sayers, but help us to be doers of your word. And help us, Lord, to acknowledge you in all of our ways, to trust you, to trust your sovereignty, to recognize you, not to presume upon you, but to honor you in all of our ways and to trust that you will guide our steps. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.